Good afternoon. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you here for the book forum. Uh, there'll be books outside for sale, and uh, uh, Steve Forbes will be happy to sign the books uh, after, the, uh, after the panel's over. Um, the book, Money, How the Destruction of the Dollar Threatens the Global Economy and What We Can Do About It, obviously is a very important question. Given the situation that we're in now with the Federal Reserve, with the stimulus, so-called stimulus policy that they've had uh, since uh, 2008, where they've pumped in uh, trillions of dollars of new reserves into the banking system, uh, but yet they haven't had much of an effect on the real economy, as, as one would expect. Um, holding interest rates at uh, near zero for over five years now, uh, encouraging risk-taking, uh, fleecing savers, and uh, there's, there needs to be more public discussion about these ill effects of Fed policy. Uh, in fact, we need to think about the entire monetary regime and how we can improve it. Now, today we have a pure discretionary government fiat money regime. The dollar is not backed by anything. Uh, and in that sense, Congress has dodged its constitutional mandate to provide money of stable value. Uh, Money is intended to grease the wheels of commerce, not, not to grease the wheels of government. But that's what the Fed's been doing with these ultra-low interest rates. They buy up a lot of the net new Treasury uh, debt, funding the government and helping the government grow beyond uh, what it should be uh, in, a, in a free society. Uh, now, this is in sharp contrast uh, with the US Monetary Commission of 1876. And uh, most people haven't read the report from that uh, commission, but it's interesting because uh, here's what they said, quote, the, the highest moral, intellectual, and material development of nations is promoted by the use of money unchanging in its value. That kind of money, instead of being the oppressor, is one of the great instruments of commerce and industry, close quote. Recently, I read an article that Milton Friedman wrote uh, for the Republican Research Committee uh, in 1984. In fact, I'm, I, the article is... Uh, 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 very insightful uh, in many respects, as Friedman usually is, and we're going to republish this article in the Cato Journal. And let me just quote uh, uh, a couple short passages there, which I think will surprise most people. Uh, in 1984, Friedman stated, quote, as I, re as I read the original Constitution, it, is, it intended to limit Congress to a commodity standard. Well, that's pretty obvious. Uh, but then he goes on to say, Quote, people who say they're for a gold standard vary from people at one extreme, like Ron Paul, who is for an honest-to-God gold standard in the sense that gold would be the medium of exchange and nothing else would have legal tender status. That's an honest-to-God gold standard, and I may say I would not be against such a standard. That would work very well, but here he goes on, but there isn't a chance of a snowball in hell of your getting it. Close quote. And I think uh, the authors today will, will address that uh, question of how you make a transition from the current system uh, to a gold standard. Uh, so today we have no monetary rule at all. Uh, and certainly there's no convertibility principle at work as under the gold standard. Uh, the authors in, in this excellent book uh, argue for sound money. That is a stable value dollar convertible into gold. Uh, they contend that if the U.S. had been on a gold standard, the 2008 financial crisis would not have occurred. Uh, and they explain how to make the transition 
from a fiat money regime to one with a golden anchor for the dollar. And they conclude that with such an anchor, there would be less uncertainty, more freedom, and prosperity. Congress, are you listening? Uh, so let's welcome uh, Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames and Steve Henke, who will be on the panel today. And we'll start with Steve Forbes. Uh, he doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, Steve is the chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. And under his leadership, the company launched a variety of new publications and businesses, uh, including the highly regarded Forbes Asia, Asia and Forbes.com, which now averages 18 million monthly visitors. Uh, the company's flagship publication, Forbes, is the nation's leading business magazine. Uh, Steve is, as, as many of you know, is no armchair thinker. He campaigned for the Republican nomination for the presidency twice in 1996 in 2000, advocating a flat tax, medical savings accounts, a new social security system for working Americans, which would be fully funded, uh, social or uh, school choice, term limits, and a strong national defense. He is the author or co-author of several books, including my favorite, uh, Flat Tax Revolution, Using a Postcard to Abolish the IRS. Now, I know there's one IRS uh, agent in the audience, so. Uh, uh, in 1985, President Reagan named Mr. Forbes Chairman of the Board for International Broadcasting, responsible for overseeing the operation of Radio Free Europe and uh, Radio Liberty. He was reappointed by President George H.W. Bush and served until uh, 1993. Steve, like James Madison, is a graduate of Princeton University, uh, and he served on the Board of Trustees there for 10 years. Let's welcome Steve Forbes. Well, thank you very, very much, Jim, for those very, very kind words, and thank all of you for being here today. Uh, before I begin my remarks, I want to recognize one person in the audience. Uh, that is the next senator from the state of New Jersey, uh, Jeff Bell, who uh, won the Republican nomination running on the gold standard. And. Uh, Any help you can uh, give Jeff, who's running against an opponent who will be very much on the side of this current administration, which we don't want. Uh, Jeff has been fighting these good ideas for good for fighting for good ideas for a number of years, and so uh, any help you can give him will be highly appreciated. Everyone says it's a long shot race, uh, but the existence of the United States was a long shot. And uh, we did it, and the return to a gold standard is a long shot, but we are going to do it. And uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be here because uh, it's one of the strange things is that money and monetary policy, for some reason, intimidates a lot of people. Uh, people who can master nuclear physics, can master surgery on the brain, and all sorts of complex subjects, somehow when it comes to monetary policy, they, uh, they, they, they feel intimidated. They feel that it's beyond their comprehension. And that, of course, is perpetrated by those who believe in uh, central banking, those who believe in uh, strong government. They shroud this whole subject in a lot of jargon, a lot of complex equations. And they want us to believe that it's beyond our comprehension and uh, understanding, that we mere mortals cannot possibly understand the intricate science 
of uh, monetary policy. And that's why if you ever bring the subject up, uh, you, you, you're going to get certain reactions. And uh, that's why I always give a travel tip before I discuss the subject, so uh, soften people up uh, why they should master this. Uh, if you ever find yourself in an airplane in coach, in middle seat, on a runway, watching your life pass away, and you want a little bit of elbow room with your seatmates, start talking about monetary policy. <laughs> <clears throat> or if any of you, if any of you uh, are on a date, if you're single or have kids or are single, bad date and one out, uh, start talking about monetary policy and <laughs> it'll be over. You'll never see that person again. But uh, so it's, it's true that monetary policy, money is absolutely critical, but it is amazingly simple, which is why we wrote this book. It's critical in the sense that if you don't get the money right, then everything else is going to be undermined. You can get it right on taxes, you can get it right on regulation, you can get it right on spending, but if you don't get the money right, it'll all be for naught. You'll end up in trouble. And so if you get it right or even semi-right, in the 1980s and 90s, we got it sloppily semi-right. If you're grading even these inflationary times, you give it a C. Uh, today we're an F minus, but uh, in the 80s and 90s, sloppy, but even with a sloppy semi-right, uh, we got some real growth. Uh, but, if you, but, but we could have done more. And the amazing thing is, when you get it right, everything else comes together. You take the case of uh, Britain. Britain, for a long time, had been working towards representative government, including the glorious revolution of 1688. They were far ahead of the rest of the world, much of the world in property rights. There was a lot of innovation going on there, in textiles and shipbuilding. But at the end of the 1600s, they were still a second-tier nation. Then along comes a new monarchy, thanks to the Glorious Revolution, bringing over Dutch habits of uh, probity in, uh, in finance. And uh, so Britain goes hardcore with Isaac Newton on a gold standard. He sets the rate. It lasts for 214 years. Britain went from a second-tier nation, and all these other things that were there, moving along, all came together and quickly became the mightiest nation in the world. Small island, mightiest nation in the world. United States, coastal nation, small agricultural nation, we go on a gold standard in 1791. And within a little over a century, go to be the mightiest industrial nation, surpassing Britain. So a lot of other things go into growth, but you got to get the money right. If you don't, you artificially hold yourself back, and it has real repercussions. Since we went off a gold exchange standard in 1971. We'd been on a gold standard of one sort or another, except for wartime, for 180 years. If we'd maintained since 1971 the average economic growth rates we did for the previous 180 years, for all the ups and downs, if we'd maintained those average growth rates, the U.S. economy today would be 50% larger. 40 years compounding, this thing really adds up. Sure, we had a good time in the 80s and 90s. We had a terrible time in the 70s, and we've had a terrible time in the last part, last 12 years because we didn't understand money. And if you don't understand money, even if you get these good periods, it's just inevitable new crises are going to come up. Even in the 80s and 90s, we almost lost it 
through unnecessary monetary crisis because we really didn't know what we were doing. And so these things rose up in ways they shouldn't have. And so this is why not only do we have a smaller economy today, it's a critical reason why two incomes today must do the job that one income could do in a family several generations ago. It's also, if you're worried about inequality, look at 1971, you can see the real break. You've got more inequality after 71 if you're into that kind of thing. So in terms of a crisis, whether big ones like we had in the 70s, intermittent ones like we had in the 80s and 90s, or the big one we had in 08 and 09, the thing about these crises is, especially the big ones, they always lead to more and bigger government. The more the Fed fails, the more powerful it becomes. Look what it's doing today. They're now ready to, they're already going into the life insurance industry. After the elections, they're ready to go into try to regulate mutual funds, hedge funds, equity funds, anything that has to do with money they want to put their paws on. And so, it, and they want to now, and they're on the, now in the process of telling banks, regulators, uh, they don't tell them explicitly, they just hint at it, which is enough. If you're in the, uh, doing the payday loans, don't, uh, banks aren't supposed to do business with you anymore. Gun business, banks are told in effect, don't do business with these people anymore. For-profit colleges, government doesn't like those, don't uh, do establish real relationships with the people in that business. So it's not just economic numbers. Fed power is becoming more and more pervasive. Jim mentioned quantitative easing. Supposedly stimulate the economy, it depressed the economy. The Fed went in the business of credit allocation. It created these reserves and used these reserves to buy virtually all the long-term treasuries for the last three or four years. The perverse effect is it made it very easy for the government to borrow, deficit without tears, no problem for big companies to borrow, but credit for small and new businesses, forget it. They took the hindmost. Compounded by regulators going into banks, making them paper things six ways to Sunday if you're going to do a non-government, non-mortgage-backed security loan. Credit allocation. Taxes. Well, you know, the Constitution. Remember the Constitution? Constitution said taxes are supposed to emanate from the House of Representatives. Janet Yellen and her predecessors are open that they want at least two, two and a half percent inflation. Put aside how you measure that inflation, but two, two and a half percent rise in the CPI costs the average American family about $1,000 a year. Who gave the Federal Reserve the authority to effectively tax an American family $1,000 a year? Congress should ask her that question explicitly. Who gave you the authority? And also ask, why does raising the price of food and necessities for a family $1,000 a year stimulate the economy. Why, do, why, why does having to spend more on necessities stimulate the economy? Love to see the answer to that. She'll mumble jumble about, uh, well, we've got deflationary pressure, blah, 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 blah. I wish somebody asked her about deflation. Uh, that means prices go down. I mean, retailers in here and around the world are dumbos because they reduce prices of things to move merchandise. Uh, that, that, that's bad. If Walmart raised prices on Black Friday and Thanksgiving, that would just be stimulus because it's inflation. I mean, let's just make these things very practical. But the impact, the impact is enormous. Elizabeth will talk uh, shortly about what it does to the social fabric of, this, of, a, of a country when you have this constant stream of debasement of the currency. It doesn't have to be a hyperinflation like Germany in the early 20s or czarist Russia or nationalist China 
or other hyperinflations. It can be the slow motion type, and the impact is enormous. And so uh, the Fed becomes more powerful. We become poorer. Government becomes more pervasive. And the amazing thing is everyone gets, not everyone, but a lot of people understand outside of media that uh, in terms of abuses of agencies like the EPA, the IRS, the National Labor Relations Board, but the power growing of the Federal Reserve, it's Teflon on steroids. It's amazing. The fact of the matter is money actually is very simple. You don't even need a dog to withdraw the curtain. It is very, very, very simple. Money makes transactions easier, buying and selling easier. So in that sense, think of it. Money measures value, the way clocks measure time, scales measure weight, and rulers measure length. That's all money does. And to work, money is based on trust. Money, unless you have these old gold or silver coins, has no intrinsic value. Today, much money is just ellipses on a computer. What gives it its value is trust. And when that trust is undermined, it undermines communications. Money gives you information about what people want. Money makes it possible for buyers and sellers to do transactions. That information is corrupted. It's like a, a virus in a computer. You can't trust it anymore. But, but understand, money makes it possible for lenders and borrowers to work together, for investors and entrepreneurs to work together, buyers and sellers. It tells us what society values. It tells us what people want and promotes trust. So Elizabeth will get to. Strangers can do transactions with each other. It promotes cooperation, breaks down barriers between people. You may not love your neighbor, but you want to sell to your neighbor. Money makes it possible, breaks down these barriers. So in terms of uh, money, just think of it as a claim on products and services that already exist, like a coat check in a restaurant. The coat check has no intrinsic value. It's a claim on a coat. But, uh, and so the idea of stimulus the idea that government creates money out of thin air. If you do, if you print money, it's called counterfeiting. If the government does, it's called stimulus. But in, but in essence, in essence, it's creating it out of, out of thin air. It's not a, a representative of an honest, real product or service. It would be like a restaurant saying, if we create more coat checks, we'll create more creation of coats. No, the coat check represents a coat that's been created. So it works best when it has a fixed value, just as Clocks work best when they have 60 minutes in an hour. Imagine if the Federal Reserve did to clocks what it does to the dollar. And since it's in a power-grabbing mode, it might do it. Imagine floating the clock. So you have 60 minutes an hour one day, 48 the next, 82 the next, 22 the next. You'd seem to have to have hedges, derivatives, futures, figure out how many hours you're working. You hire somebody, 15, 20 bucks an hour. Is that a DC hour, Maryland hour, Bangladesh hour? Or imagine, imagine baking a cake. It says, bake the batter 45 minutes. Now you have to figure, is that inflation-adjusted minutes? Is that a forward minute? I mean, it just, just makes it very, very complicated. Imagine building a bridge. Suddenly the ruler goes from 12 inches and a foot to 10. You want to go on that bridge if the ruler keeps changing each day? Or a diet. This is the ultimate easy diet. Raise the number of, uh, of ounces in a pound from 16 to 32. My goodness, 100 pounds lost overnight. No, no. So... But it's, so it is, it is absolutely unreliable, makes money more and more unreliable, corrupts the information. And so you saw it in the past. It, 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 because the information's corrupted, you get bad investment, malinvestment, misdirected investment. For example, in the 1970s, 
Oil went from $3 to almost $40 a barrel. Everyone thought, oh, must be shortages out there. We better, we better go in the oil industry. Tens of billions of dollars pumped into the energy industry. Early 80s, inflation, Volcker, Reagan conquer inflation. Oil crashes from almost $40 down to $10 a barrel, then stabilizes at $20 to $25. You saw the same thing in agricultural land. You saw the same thing in commercial real estate and parts of housing. So in the 1980s, which was a boom decade, was a depression time for the energy industry, depression time for agriculture, huge shakeout in commercial real estate. So the growth of the 70s was false because of that virus in the computer. You see it in the last decade. Oil from mid 80s to the early part of the last decade averaged a little over $21 a barrel. Today it is what? 90, 100, 110, pick a number. Even if you didn't have a Middle East crisis, still would be in the 90s, four to five times. Imagine what life would be like if a gallon of gas cost a dollar, which it did not too many years ago, versus three and a half, four and a half today, depending on the part of the country you're in. We never would have had the housing bubble. Could not have happened. The Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department hadn't undermined the dollar. So you get less productive investment. First, investment is, is always a risky thing, but if you don't know if you're gonna get back a 100 cent dollar, 80 cent dollar, 20 cent dollar, you get less productive investment. John Tamney, part of Cato, talks about Forbes, talks about, talks about, how you don't get investment in, uh, in future things, you don't, and you don't miss it because you never see it. If Steve Jobs had never been allowed to do what he did, would we have missed the iPhone? No, we never knew it could have been there. If Henry Ford hadn't done the moving assembly line, we wouldn't have known that this toy for the rich could be something for everybody. So it not only misdirects investment, not only suffocates investment, but it also misdirects brain power. One example. Before 1971, there was very little currency trading, certainly among the major powers. They were all fixed. Dollar was fixed to gold for a while. Today, currency trading is rampant. The volume today is over $3 trillion a day. Now imagine tens of thousands of the brightest people in the world focusing on currency trading, something that need not exist. Imagine again, if we floated the clock, you'd be trading in watches, having the best brains, trading minutes and hours each day. Absolute waste, absolute waste. So it's a huge, huge, huge uh, cost. So the Federal Reserve, in terms of regulation, makes it, uh, what, what they're doing in terms of trying to suffocate risk is it hurts small companies. I mentioned they got suffocated in the last five to six years because of QE, and what has happened with uh, regulation. This also affects growth. One of the virtues of this country, one reason why we traditionally have grown 50% faster than the rest of the developed world, is because we create new big companies. They start small and then they become big. 70s terrible decade, look what was rising up. FedEx, Amgen, Apple, Apple Computer, Microsoft, Oracle, Southwest Airlines. All of these babies become the big companies tomorrow. Late 90s, Google, once a number, two guys, challenged Microsoft and others, become now the monster of the world. So a huge price is being paid. And the problem is authorities know less today about money, as Nathan Lewis has pointed out, than they did 100 years ago. So we lurch from these crises, and it's bipartisan. Nixon took us off the gold standard. John Kennedy tried to keep us on it. Ronald Reagan fought the inflation. Bill Clinton wasn't bad on the dollar. Sadly, George W. Bush and this president, bad on the dollar. So it's not a partisan thing, and it's not out of malice. It's because 
They don't understand money. So the question becomes, how do you best fix a value for money? Now, it's not going to be as precise as a clock or a second, but the experience shows gold. Why gold? Because it works. That's the short answer. Work 4,000 years history, work for 180 years pretty well in this country. Why gold? Basically because it maintains its intrinsic value better than anything else, better than silver, copper, palladium, anything else. And it does so. It's not easy to mine. It's rare, but not too rare. Not perfect, but rare, but not too rare. You can't destroy it. You wear a gold ring. There may be grains there that go back to Egyptian pharaoh times. You can't destroy it. You can smash it, heat it, cool it, beat it up. Still there. Can't get rid of it. it means storage. Storage is compact, but also you don't have to worry about rats eating the gold or termites uh, gnawing away at the gold. You don't have to worry about spillage like oil. You don't have to worry about aging. Oh, is this gold, uh, you know, like chocolate get, gets a little stale? No, still, still, still good. Easy to transport, malleable. All of those reasons are why gold is like a ruler or a scale. It can, you can give it a fixed value. And it does not mean, it does not mean that it restricts money supply. All it means is money truly reflects what's been created by you in the marketplace. So just because you have 5,280 feet in a mile, you have that fixed measure of a mile, doesn't restrict the number of miles in a highway. If you have a vibrant economy, you create more, more money. Stagnant economy, less money. And as uh, Nathan Lewis has pointed out, from the 1770s, when we started becoming an independent nation, to the 1900, when we became the mightiest nation in the world, in that period of time, in that period of time, the dollar was usually fixed to gold. In that period of time, the amount of gold mined in the world went up three and a half fold, even with the California gold rush, three and a half fold increase in that 120 year period. Money supply in the US, 160 fold. So it's both stable in value, but flexible in meeting the needs of the marketplace. So there are variations of a gold standard. We discuss them in the book. And that's what should the debate should be about. Not whether we go back on it, but what's the best way to do a system that can work today with what we have today. We think you need to make it law, not discretionary with the Fed. Let's say we fix it at $1,200 an ounce. I'm just picking a number. That would be law. Go 1% above, 1% below. But if it goes 1% above, the Fed takes countermeasures. Goes below, it takes countermeasures. To make sure the Fed doesn't go off the rails, and this is going to be a dieted Fed, uh, this is going to be a real ad for Weight Watchers before and after with the Fed. We're going to go back to 1913 Fed, pre-World War I Fed, where it has one job or two jobs. One is maintain the value of the dollar against gold. Number two, deal with panics, which you'll get every 75 years. That's it. And maybe it can eventually disappear. But it should be the kind of agency that has no more importance than the Bureau of Weight and Measures inside the Commerce Department. So to make sure you, you, you embed it in law, but also you allow alternative currencies. If, uh, if the government starts to misbehave, even against the law, which they do now, uh, you can have a Cato dollar, Liberty dollar, maybe a Steve Forbes dollar, who knows? Maybe go in the currency business. You also have uh, allow convertibility in the sense that if you want to take your dollars and get, them for, get the bullion from the government, you can. You don't need a gold cover. You just have to maintain a certain amount. I'd make a high commission just so the government doesn't compete with private dealers. But you, have, you, you can devise ways. You can devise ways 
to uh, make sure the system is as good as humans can divide, to, to, to do it. A lot of myths about the gold standard we deal with, and how do, how do we start? There are various ways. Uh, Kevin Brady wants to do a commission. That's a good thing. I understand there's uh, some other legislation brewing on Capitol Hill, which uh, may start to get this subject out there and uh, examining it. So the purpose of the book is to explain money. It's a measure of value based on trust it communicates and how you fix the value. That's the real question. And then we can go forward. But one of the things, one of the things, and I alluded to it, that makes going, having the kind of system we have today, whimsical system we have today, so dangerous. It's not just about GDP and median incomes. It's about our whole democracy and social fabric. And Elizabeth will now discuss how it can undermine the whole essence of the American experiment if this thing's allowed to continue. Thank you. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, our next speaker will be Elizabeth Ames, uh, Steve's co-author. We're delighted to have her here today. She is a communications executive, uh, writer, and entrepreneur. Uh, she founded uh, Bold Communications, which provides media and strategic consulting to a wide range of corporate uh, and individual clients. And she's the co-author with Steve Forbes of two previous books, How Capitalism Will Save Us, uh, was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and Freedom Manifesto, Why Free Markets Are Moral and Big Government Isn't, uh, is also a good read. So uh, welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's good to be here today. I want to talk a little bit about the chapter that readers of money have found uh, particularly thought-provoking, which is chapter five, Money and Morality, How Debasing Money Debases Society. The, chap the chapter starts out with a famous quote from the economist John Maynard Keynes, one that many of you may know, and I'll read it to you. Lenin was certainly right. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction, and it does it in a manner that, one, not, that not one man in a million is able to diagnose. And it's ironic that Keynes, who famously advanced the idea that expanding the supply of money is generally good for the economy, authored this passage. But Keynesians have long believed in a distinction between hyperinflation and more moderate inflation. And they'll admit that hyperinflation may have led to the great disorder in Weimar Germany, but a little bit of inflation, they say, is OK, even good for the economy. And they're saying this today. And chapter 5 tells you why this is wrong. We say in the book that unstable money is a little bit like carbon monoxide. It's odorless and it's colorless. And you don't know the damage it's doing until it's nearly too late. People are often not aware when governments weaken currency, and they only usually, most, most people only see the effects. And that's one reason why debasing money is especially corrosive. And people also say that money is about, the press in particular, likes to say that money is about greed. But as Steve has mentioned, and as the book uh, goes into in detail, it's also about trust. Money permits total strangers from all nations and societies, people that don't even like each other many times, to come together and conduct transactions based on a, common, a commonly agreed upon measure of value. It promotes co cooperation between people by serving as an instrument of communication. It tells us 
as Steve mentioned, what society values, not just materially, however, it also expresses priorities. When money is corrupted, its ability to act as a facilitator of trust and cooperation is corrupted too. Unstable, debased money undermines the vital relationships between buyer and seller, between lender and debtor. The philosopher John Locke described this fissure that is produced at, at society's core. Uh, and I'll read this very famous, another famous quote to you. He wrote, whether the, creditor be, whether the creditor be forced to receive less or the debtor be forced to pay more than his contract, the damage and injury is the same whenever a man is defrauded of his due. And during periods of unstable money, this basic fissure in, 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 at the core of society actually leads to a, a classic scenario that, that we've seen throughout history, scapegoating, corruption, social unrest, and increasingly coercive government. And in the worst cases, it can unleash the forces of political extremism that can sometimes lead to the rise of dictators. I mean, the classic, uh, of course, is the classic example is Weimar Germany leading to the rise of Hitler, the hyperinflation in, in Weimar Germany. Uh, an investment strategist named Dylan Grice recently wrote a particularly good piece that described how this scenario has occurred again and again. And monetary abasement, as, as, as he debasement, co has coincided not only with the persecution of the Jews in pre-World War II Germany, but also with the French Revolution's reign of terror, the Salem witch, witch trials, and other bloody episodes through the centuries. But this kind of destruction of trust and unrest is not a remote historical occurrence. It's taking place today in many areas of the world, such as the Middle East and Europe, and to varying and lesser degrees in the US. ETM Analytics, a South African investment advisory house, has issued reports they call riot alerts, which, able, which are able to predict the world's most likely trouble spots uh, based on the, the tendency of uh, the ability, based on whether or not nations are big abusers, monetary abusers, or big inflators. And on that list, Syria tops the list, which uh, that country has had, and people don't always realize this, a 200% a, a hyperinflation. They've topped this list, or they topped it in 2013, followed by Argentina, South Africa, Egypt, India, and Turkey. And of course, there are political causes for this kind of unrest, but unstable money in all cases has been the catalyst. Ri the, the riots that began the Arab sp the Spring, you may remember, started in Tunisia over, over rising food prices. And the financial crisis was very much a Lockean betrayal of trust. Uh, as you remember, weak money helped create a housing bu bu bubble. And then the Fed pulled out the rug from under borrowers by raising artificially low interest rates. And the result, of course, was a wave of foreclosures, the collapse of major financial institutions, the stock market panic of 2008 that set off a worldwide destruction of trust that ricocheted from one continent to the next. In Europe, bank failures and bailouts led to the EU's sovereign debt crisis. An economist from Deutsche Bank told the New York Times, in this day and age, a bank run sp spreads around the world, not around the block. Once a bank run is underway, it doesn't matter anymore. If you have good loans or bad loans, people lose confidence in you. When money is corrupted, the destruction of trust spreads from balance sheets to the streets. And you know, you you had in this country, of course, we all think about the the, the protests of Occupy Wall Street, 
And their complaints about inequality and that the system is rigged typify the sense of being defrauded that Locke and others have described that's typical of a, a, an inflationary period. People on fixed salaries see their money losing value, while others, like the financial sector, for example, benefit from artificial windfall gains that are produced by the weakening of currency. In fact, the Pew Research Center in 2012, and they've done a number of studies like this one recently, but in 2012 they, they found that we've seen the greatest polarization uh, in 25 years in this country, the greatest political polarization, but it wasn't just since the financial crisis. It really began uh, about 12 years ago during the Bush administration, and the last 12 years has been really a, a great a uh, little bit more than a decade of, of, of great monetary expansion, and that has, has really subtly, in the beginning, but less subtly later on, has really undermined uh, our, our cohesion in the United States. The link between, and when, when money is undermined, the link between effort and reward is severed. And that's why in economies with unstable currency, you, you, you get more corruption and crime, and this is something that is not always appreciated. A number of studies have found that infl inflation has a strong connection, a stronger connection to crime than joblessness. Crime rates in the US, in fact, dropped immediately after the financial crisis when there was a serious deflation. They began to move up in 2010, however, during quantitative easing. And these are just a few highlights from chapter five, left and right today agree that this is a period of malaise, and we hope this book helps people put aside some of the finger pointing of recent years and recognize the role of the unstable dollar as catalyst and culprit. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, our next speaker will be uh, an old friend of Cato's, Steve Hankey. Uh, he's a professor of applied economics and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Uh, and he's also a senior fellow and director of the Troubled Currencies Project at Cato and a contributing editor at um, Globe Asia magazine. Uh, Steve served as senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors and as a senior advisor to the Joint Economic Committee uh, back in 1984 to 88. Uh, he's perhaps best known as uh, the Johnny Appleseed of currency boards, uh, having played an important role in establishing new currency boards in a number of countries, including Argentina, Estonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Ecuador, Lithuania, and Montenegro. Uh, in addition to his scholarly and public policy roles, Steve is a well-known currency and commodity trader and uh, currently serves as chairman of Richmond uh, Optimus uh, uh, Global Macro Hedge Fund. So it's a pleasure to have Steve with us today. Thank you, Jim. Let me begin by uh, stating what my big takeaway is from money this kind of money, and, and that is that Steve Forbes is no James Dean. Forbes is a rebel with a cause. <laughs> it comes through loud and clear on every page of money. Uh, the form that I plan to use today in my brief remarks is to 
continue with a few takeaways, 11 to be precise, or some kind of sub-takeaways, but I've got 11 here uh, that I uh, gleaned out of reading money. And the first one, uh, oddly enough, starts with a dedication of the book itself, uh, the remembrances of Alexander Hamilton, uh, are on page one in the frontispiece, and I knew the book was going in the right direction the minute I read this. Now, the reason I would like to say a little bit about Hamilton is that many people in certain circles have the wrong idea about Hamilton. Forbes and Ames don't. They, they got it right. <laughs> uh, we all know that Hamilton was a genius and what they call today somebody who specialized in financial engineering. Fine. Most people don't know, however, that he was a distinguished lawyer who took on many famous cases out of principle. And some of those cases uh, occurred in New York State after the Revolution. Uh, during the Revolution, New York State enacted some very harsh measures against loyalist and British subjects. One was the Confiscation Act in 1779, then you had the Citation Act 1782, and the Trespass Act, Act in 1783. They all involved taking of property, and Hamilton argued these cases and took the view that there was a big difference between democracy and law. And, and Hamilton won all the cases. The, sec the third uh, thing that I'd like to mention about Hamilton that also many people don't know is that Milton Friedman got it right in his Newsweek column of the 4th of June, 1973. The title of the column is Alexander Hamilton on the Common Market. And this is what Friedman wrote about Federalist Paper 15, which Hamilton wrote. It contains a more cogent analysis of the European common market than any I have seen from the pen of a modern writer. So we got the dedication right, Steve and Elizabeth. Uh, let, let's go from there. Uh, for takeaway two, uh, speaking of the taking of property and money, we don't have to look very far. We can stay right here in the United States. Uh, don't forget uh, Congress's abrogation of the gold clauses in June 1933. It was an outright confiscation of property. And to add insult to the injury, in 1935, the Supreme Court upheld uh, those takings. And the conclusion here is, when it comes to money, the rule of law is, is rather elastic. And, and it's particularly elastic when there are things like national emergencies that occur. When you have a national emergency, the law is very flexible, even, even with regard to Gold ruler, Steve. Uh, and it's not just in the United States that we have a lot of elasticity with regard to law. Uh, recent history in Germany, of all places, 
uh, will indicate and demonstrate, I think, that we have lots of elasticity. Now, Germany had joined the European monetary system, and, and as part of the rules in that treaty, uh, the Bundesbank, for example, would have been required to purchase any other weak currency that was on the floor of the ERM when it, when it was down and out, in other words, using Deutschmarks to buy Lira, for example, which the Bundesbank surprisingly did not do on Monday, the 14th of September, 1992. The Lira went down the tubes and was devalued. It was not in, in fact defended by the Bundesbank. The Bundesbank sat on its hands, didn't do anything. Now, how could this be? Germany had agreed via treaty to be a member of the European monetary system, but there are little catches always, and that is Chancellor Schmidt had signed a secret agreement with the Bundesbank indicating that that treaty was null and void and the Bundesbank could do as it wished uh, when it wished. Uh, so four, 14 years later, that secret a little scrap of paper uh, <laughs> reared its ugly head and that, that was the, the end of the Bundesbank's obligations. It was also the end of the lira, at least at that exchange rate. Now, two days later, you, 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 we're going now from the obscure weeds into the real world. Uh, Black Wednesday, the 16th of June, the, the mighty pound uh, was taken down primarily by George Soros, who uh, filled his pockets in a, in a few minutes. So again, when it comes to money, and we're talking about money, you have to realize that it, even, when, even when there are laws, treaties, and so forth, the, these things can be kind of, shall we say, malleable. The fourth takeaway that I get uh, from reading money is that Forbes and Ames have clearly taken the waters in Vienna or maybe Baden by Wien. Uh, this thing is very Austrian. Uh, the book, and, and, it, and it starts uh, by rejecting the idea of a closed economy or accepting the idea that Bob Mundell, I, I love Mundell's line, the only closed economy that we know of is the world. <laughs> and, and this is the Forbes Ames position. Uh, it is very unlike, by the way, uh, Ben Bernanke, the last chairman of the Fed, and, and the Fed in general now is operating totally in a closed environment. Bernanke had six items on his dashboard that he was watching, and, and the dollar's ex exchange rate was not one of those. The most important price in the world is the dollar-euro rate, by the way, and, and, and Bernanke didn't even have it on the dashboard. The, the second Austrian notion is that Forbes and Ames junked the idea of equilibrium and economic stability. Uh, the next Austrian item is that they embrace the central role of the entrepreneur in markets as a means to assemble 
dispersed information and make, make the world tick, basically. The fifth takeaway, if you don't like to get out in the theoretical weeds of Austrian economics versus other schools and history of economic thought, we can get much more practical. And let me quote from something that Paul Volcker wrote as a preface to a 1995 book by Dean and Pringle called The Central Banks. And Volcker said this, and I think this captures basically the spirit and essence of, of, of everything in, in money. <laughs> Again, the, this money. <laughs> Volcker said, or wrote, we sometimes forget that central banking as we know it today is in fact largely an invention of the past hundred years or so, even though a few central banks can trace their ancestry back to the early 19th century or before. It is a sobering fact that the prominence of central banks in this century has coincided with a general tendency towards more inflation, not less. By and large, if the overriding objective is price stability, we did better in the 19th century gold standard and passive central banks with currency boards or even free banking. The truly unique power of a central bank, after all, is the power to create money. And ultimately, the power to create is the power to destroy. And I think Volcker preface to that 95 book pretty much encapsulates the, 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 the spirit, if not the narrow technical points contained in Forbes and Ames' book. Like Volcker, this is takeaway six if you're keeping notes and haven't <laughs> dozed off on me. Uh, very hard to see. These lights are very bright, Jim. Uh, I, I, I can't tell if people are taking notes or napping. But in any case, uh, like Volcker, uh, Forbes and Ames are very straightforward. And, and uh, as Steve alluded to, not, not often in some technical complicated uh, diatribe or dissertation about, about money. And, and so the question is, well, why is most of the literature on money so complicated and, and uh, hard to get your head around. And I think Larry White put his finger on this. Uh, Larry did a very detailed analysis of the, the publications starting at, this, at the beginning of the supply chain with the professional literature when it comes to money and banking. And White found that 74% of the articles on money and banking are published in Fed-sponsored publications, and they were all author authored by <clears throat> people on the Fed staff and people associated with the Fed. In other words, people who worked at the Fed in the past, people who were on Fed grants, and, and, and whatnot. Uh, well, fortunately, Forbes and uh, Ames have leapfrogged that hurdle and, and gotten into something that you can read and, 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 and understand and enjoy. Takeaway seven, uh, where does the near monopoly of professional publications lead us? Well, let's look at the current crisis. 
and the Great Recession, which, by the way, we're still in. And we're left with the curse of inflation targeting and floating exchange rates. This is the current, it was the, the central banker's mantra before the crisis, and it's even more the mantra now, after the crisis. Uh, we had, just to run quickly down uh, the, the list here, we had Bernanke in November of 2002 giving his famous speech. Remember, Bernanke is a guru on inflation targeting in a professional sense before he was even at the Fed. This is, <laughs> he was at Princeton, Steve. Uh, <laughs> Can't always get it right. <laughs> I, 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 I know, but... Uh, at any rate, uh, we, this Princetonian in November of 2002, we, we gave the, the, the warning cry, and the warning cry was deflation. We have to defend against deflation. And of course, he, he conned the, the rest of the Fed governors into the notion that we were facing a crisis of deflation. We, uh, prices were going to actually start showing up with negative numbers. and. By July 2003, we know the Fed funds rate was down at 1% when the neutral or natural rate then would have probably been 3 or 4%. But at any rate, this led to yield chasing. This is the thing Steve was talking about. He, he, the Fed was the enabler of the housing bubble. If, you, if people talk about the Congress and what Congress was doing with housing and everything, yes, true, but, but trivial. The enabler of all these price bubbles and everything is the Fed. And, and, uh, and, and people, even conservative commenters, can't get that right. Uh, yield chasing, enormous risk taking, carry trades, enormous leverage was put on because of this uh, fighting deflation and, and pushing the Fed funds rate down. As a result, what did we have? The inflation target, actually, from 2003 to, through 2008, the CPI, excluding uh, fuel and food, uh, only increased by 12.4%. So it was right on almost 2% per annum, just a nice little linear line going up over time. Housing went up 45% from 2003 to the first quarter of 2006 when it peaked out. And everybody keeps talking about the housing bubble, the housing bubble. Well, no, there were, there were a lot of other bubbles that were much bigger than housing. Stock prices went up from 03 to 07, 66%. And of course, commodities zoomed by 92% from 03 to 08. And never mind, we, 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 we broke these bubbles and we had these huge relative price distortions, which again, any good Austrian economist uh, knows are, are a sure sign of trouble. And we still have, what? Inflation targeting. We still have exchange rates not on the, on the dashboard over at the Fed. And when we really got into the middle of the crisis, what happened? Well, Bob Mundell has analyzed this very well. <laughs> The Fed was ultra tight. The crisis began with Lehman, and, and the Fed became mega, mega tight. And what's the indication of that? Well, the indication is that the dollar soared by about 20% in, in a few short days. 
gold went down by about 20%, oil went down by 57%, and what did you have? From July 08 to July 09, remember the inflation rate had reached 5.5% in July of 08. It was down to minus 2.1% in July of 09. So you can forget about Milton Friedman's uh, uh, old line, you know, in inflation, long and variable lags. No, <laughs> you, you get these kind of disruptions in the exchange rate market with floating exchange rate, and you can have inflation uh, changing overnight, 5.5% plus to, to minus 1.4% in, in a matter of 12 months. So Jim has passed me a, a little note, and it says three minutes, but that was, that was two minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even to take away number eight. I mean, they're getting better with, with time, Jim, but I'm going to stop by simply saying with regard to inflation targeting and floating exchange rates, which we're stuck with now, by the way, uh, we go to another Princeton professor, Lars Svensson, who was also the deputy governor of the Reichsbank. And, and here's, what, here's what Svensson said. My view is that the crisis was largely caused by factors that had very little to do with monetary policy. Now these guys get away with this, and they get away with it, again, back to Larry White's thing, you have to realize that the supply chain in the starts with the professional literature in money and banking, and, and, and then the journalists at various levels are feeding off of this. So if you control the source of the nutrients in the food chain, you control it. And, and these central banks more or less have a lock on, on this. So this is why Svensson can repeat <laughs> humbly that in my view, the crisis was largely caused by factors that had very little to do with monetary policy. I mean, what's this guy smoking in Sweden? Thank you. <coughs> Thanks, Steve. Um, so let's open it to uh, questions. Uh, if you just raise your hand, identify yourself, and uh, keep your uh, comment uh, brief, make it a question, uh, preferably address it to um, one of the uh, panelists, uh, and uh, we'll have about maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes for questions, and then we'll go upstairs uh, on the second floor for lunch. Um, so if you just raise your hand. Yep. Over here. Landy, Manchester Trade. Thank you for concentrating so much thought process in a 40-minute period. It makes us work hard. It's not a free lunch today. Basic question. I remember watching CNBC, Bloomberg a few years ago and thinking we were on the verge of depression. Everything was going bad. You know better than I know what happened. Turns out that we did better than Europe, that we avoided a depression. Stock market is again up again, slowly but surely. The employment index is going up. We know the problem about people leaving workforce. But we did not have the dire consequences that we were expecting. 
Some of us thought it was because of Benaki once we learned how to pronounce his name. I don't know. But it does seem that all this gloom and doom may not be appropriate because the performance since we had this problem is better than it was in 1929. Thank you. Um, well, because you avoid 1929, uh, it's like uh, saying uh, you avoid an extinction of uh, like the dinosaurs. You have a lot of hurt uh, in between what happened in the early 30s and uh, what has happened since. Uh, the crisis itself was eminently avoidable. If we'd had stable money, as been pointed out, we never would have had the housing bubble and a lot of other bubbles. I mentioned oil, what happened to the price of oil. Huge uh, malinvestment, misdirected investment, growth that we could have had we uh, did not have, productive growth. So after the crisis, when we, uh, the meteor did not hit the earth in 2008, the thing to keep in mind is why didn't we make a more rapid comeback? After every sharp downturn in American history, we always at least initially got a sharp upturn. And the question became, could you sustain it? This is the first uh, so-called recovery where uh, five year, took five years into it before we got employment levels back to where they were before uh, the uh, disaster. So why are we at European-like growth rates of 1.8, 1.52%? 1 and uh, we should have been growing at least initially 4, 5, 6% as we did in the 80s. It didn't happen. And one of the key reasons it didn't happen was because of what the Federal Reserve was doing uh, to the dollar. If the Fed had done nothing, uh, the do we, we, we would have had a much more rapid recovery. They allocated money, made it easier for the government to do its mischief. They made it uh, very difficult for banks to uh, for capital to flow to uh, small and new businesses. And that's why the job creation has been so punk. Uh, comparing us to Western Europe is like uh, comparing uh, the Houston Astros uh, with the uh, perhaps uh, the old uh, Pittsburgh Pirates before last year. Uh, two, do, two bad teams, one, doing, one bad team doing better than another bad team does not get you to the World Series. And uh, we're, we're a long ways from that. So uh, yeah, we did a little better than Europe, but Europe has been doing worse than the United States uh, for, for decades. Uh, when we have a normal growth rates, this country grows about three and a third, three and a half percent on average. Europe grows about 2%. I'm talking about Western Europe, 2% on average. So uh, uh, we, we, we traditionally do better than Europe. And the question is not that we do better than Western Europe. Why haven't we done better by America's own standards? And, and this is, of course, you have the tax code horrors, uh, Obamacare horrors and other horrors. But uh, the, the, the money part is a critical part of it. The Fed had let capital, uh, let cre credit markets work instead of suppressing prices like uh, what, you do, uh, what you do to housing markets when you have rent controls. We'd have a much bigger, much healthier economy today. Uh, yeah. Ju yeah. Is Judy yeah. here, Shelton? Judy, I told you I'd, uh, yeah. there you are, so. Go ahead. I'm Judy Shelton from the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. And um, it's such a privilege to hear this kind of down-to-earth <laughs> wisdom about the importance of sound money today. But I, I have a question for Steve because um, I'm concerned about how this can translate 
Which, which in, Steve? Uh, sorry, for Forbes. <laughs> the the good-looking one. The one I'm thinking <laughs> who, who had to campaign at the presidential level on the idea of sound money through a golden dollar. And I, here it is, 2014. We see um, global equity markets going up 28%. We see global real economic growth at maybe 2.8. So we know that money is not calibrated to real economic growth. So maybe we're looking at another huge global financial crash in a couple of years on the next US president's watch. So why isn't this the most compelling issue that, it, why isn't this the big bold idea, for example, that would unite the, the GOP? Uh, why isn't this the, the idea most consistent with founding principles, but also with the sophistication to realize that what the world needs, if we're really gonna talk about free trade, is an orderly and ethical international monetary system. How, how do we make this number one on, on the issues that can be promoted to the public? Well, part, part of the problem is, is the, when you say monetary policy just intimidates people and pe people figure it's beyond their uh, understanding. It isn't. And I think people understand instinctively that something is not right, that uh, middle classes does not have the opportunities they had in the, in, in the past, and that uh, we're stagnating. So uh, we've got to uh, do more of like asking Janet Yellen, why does raising prices for a family $1,000 a year good for the economy? We should be running ads. We were discussing this earlier before we got together, uh, run ads uh, taking off of those uh, wheelchair ads against Paul Ryan. Uh, why don't we have wheelchair ads with grandma in the wheelchair and uh, Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, and uh, Janet Yellen picking uh, grandma's pockets why, why, what, what does the Fed have against the elderly? Why don't they allow the elderly to earn uh, money on their uh, bank CDs? How much money have you cost the elderly in their retirement by doing what you're doing? Uh, what do you have against small businesses and have people come on and give how, how hard it is to uh, get uh, reliable flows of credit? It's beginning to change a little bit, which is why I think the economy will grow this year, but uh, it's like a 250 ball player versus a 180, it still ain't gonna get you to the World Series. So we just have to bring it down to uh, the level that uh, to relate to people's real concerns. Uh, why why, why is there seem to be uh, uh, an erosion between uh, honest effort and reward? Why, why is there this rise of crony capitalism? Well, that's what happens when you, uh, if you can't trust the money, then uh, you get ahead by making political connections. So those are things that people can understand. You don't have to be a demagogue, but just ask basic questions like that. Have some fun at it. Let's see, let's go around this side of the room. I think the way in the back there. Uh, question for uh, Steve Forbes. Want to identify yourself? And sure. Um, my name is Bob Vereker, and I'm a uh, uh, passive uh, sports uh, enthusiast, uh, many times retired. Uh, the question for Steve is this. Um, instead of advertising uh, or 
uh, putting out ads. Have you, again, seriously considered running for president of the United States uh, 2016? Is, is there any chance of that? Um. Well, thank you for, for, for the uh, question. Uh, I assume it's a complimentary one. Uh, <laughs> well, but, I figured uh, but, tying but, in with the book tour uh, yeah. of others, but, it might work out. Yeah, my, my, mine, mine hasn't had uh, quite the sales yet of uh, hers, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up. Certainly, we'll, our, our ideas will last longer than any in that book. But, uh, but, uh, but it, I'm an agitator now and uh, more in the Tom Paine mold rather than uh, the running mold. So I get my exercise now in stationary bikes and uh, uh, I'm looking over the field and one of the key things I think all of us have to do is uh, ask candidates or potential candidates about, these, about this issue. So uh, not that they're gonna give you a good answer at the beginning, but that they know they have to bone up on it, start to learn about it. And if enough people do it, especially in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, candidates will take note of it. You don't have to have large numbers. They know in primaries and caucuses, dedicated people make a huge difference. And if people uh, show concern about this issue, they will respond. And, uh, but you have to keep the pressure on. I would have thought after 2008, after Ron Paul's run, where uh, he didn't win, but he had a lot of young people uh, chanting, end the Fed. Uh, there, so there, it, it's, it's not a generational thing. It's a matter of uh, pressuring people to uh, learn the issue. And so that, that, that's the mode I'm in now. And uh, I'll, we, we all got to do our part on that. I'd like to hear what the next Senator Bell would say about that. In my uh, successful primary campaign, I assumed that voters would understand the relationship between cause and effect. The striking thing about voters that I talk to is that they're not just disgusted by the economy, they are puzzled by it. They do not understand why there's so little growth. They do not understand why fresh diplomas are serving as wallpaper and nothing else. Why isn't small business generating the number of jobs that it does in a normal recovery? When you relate that to the Fed and the zero interest rate policy specifically and paper money, people perk up. They're very interested in it. The elites are not. They know that this is something you can't talk about, whether they're financial elites or political elites, but average voters understand that the economy is seriously underperforming at first, they don't understand why, but I think that candidates, if they provide an answer to that problem, are going to get ahead. Steve, I think you want to yeah. yeah, on the Jeff, just to to follow up a little bit what Jeff was talking about, as well as the first question that came up, and 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 also Steve Forbes's response to the economy. Remember, I I, I made a remark in my brief comments that we were still in the Great Recession. Now, the question is, well, how far in are we? Well, we're, we're in, pre it's pretty bad. 
the, the nominal rate of growth in aggregate demand in the United States measured by final sales to domestic purchasers, which the Bureau of Economic Analysis puts out, you can look it up. Uh, it, from 1987, this is average, the trend rate of growth, and nominal, nominal is 5%. We, we're growing at about 2.8 right now, and, and, and that's uh, way below trend. Now, the question is, why, why are we growing so slowly? This is not a puzzle. Money dominates, and, and you have to measure the money supply properly, and if you do measure the money supply properly, the Divisia M4 broad measure of money that, that you can find at the Center for Financial Stability in New York is, is running about 2.6% now. So people go, you're, you're nuts. I mean, the, the Fed, everybody here has been talking about the Fed exploding things with, with quantitative easing and so forth. Well, the fact is they have exploded things, but they, they are producing what's called state money and state money is high-powered money or monetary base, and, and that's peanuts relative to total money, which drives the economy. And, and it's gone up, by the way, from about 10% of total money at the time Lehman went down to, to about 20% of total money now. So it's expanded its sphere enormously, but it's still peanuts. So what's the elephant in the room? And the elephant in the room is bank money. Most money, even in the United States, 80% of the money produced in the United States is produced by banks, not, not the Fed. So what's been going on with banks? Since Lehman, bank money has actually contracted by 13%. It's, it's much less than it was at Lehman. Now, why is that? Well, you've got Dodd-Frank, you've got the Basel capital requirements, you, you've got e every dog and cat on Capitol Hill bashing bankers. I mean, you, you can't read anything, anything positive about a banker, any banker, I don't care where. You, and what do you end up? You get banks shrinking their risk assets on their balance sheets, meaning shrinking deposits in the loans and deposits in the system and bank money actually shrinking. So it isn't surprising to me at all that we're still in the Great Recession. It, it all revolves around our monetary policy schizophrenia. We have all this tightness and this huge credit crunch that, that kind of Steve Forbes alluded to. Small and medium-sized businesses getting turned down for loans, having, having great difficulty getting credit because this bank money shrinking because of all the regulation, which is tight money. And then to compensate that, the, the Fed, for all their faults, is, has been forced to do, they embrace tight bank money policy on the one hand. Yellen is a very hawkish on this, mega hawkish, and mega loose when it comes to the production of state money because the, the Fed is trying to offset this reduction in bank money that, that, that they are part of the cause of. So, so that's, uh, that's, that's more or less the soup that we're in, and we're going to stay there because this bank regulation thing is not going away. I've talked to central bankers all, all over Europe, 
in the United States, and, and they are patting themselves on the back for just regulating the dickens out of banks to make the world safe from bankers. Well, no, they're making the world a very dangerous place because banks aren't banking. Well, uh, I think we need to wrap up. Maybe one more question, a short question, and then um, please allow uh, Mr. Forbes to go outside to the desk where he's going to be signing books, um, and then everyone can proceed up to the second floor for lunch. So let's take one more question. How about right down the front row here? Hi, uh, my name is Caleb Watney with the State Policy Network. Um, and in light of the unwillingness to change that our central government has obviously shown in terms of our monetary policy, um, would it almost be better to pursue a strategy um, in cryptocurrency? Because um, I guess I see a lot of um, light at the end of the tunnel with the potentials that Bitcoin has for you know loosening up. It's a lot harder to regulate because it's all online and because of the huge online accountability that it has. And so it would be better for us as the liberty movement to focus our efforts on um, the future that cryptocurrency could have in our economy. Thanks. Uh, well, the uh, rise of uh, Bitcoin is a high-tech cry for help uh, because of what's happened to the dollar, also a uh, thing called privacy. But uh, the, the key reason why the Bitcoin hasn't taken really taken off, I think, is uh, twofold. The key one is it still fluctuates in value, and you got to fix it, uh, preferably to gold or... Uh, it's not going to be useful as money. If you get paid in bitcoins, you don't know what you can buy each week. Uh, you're not going to get long-term contracts. You're not going to, people aren't just going to accept it. Uh, the other thing is on bitcoins, they restricted the a number, I think, to 21 million. And uh, if, you, if you want money to really work, it's got to be able to grow with people's activities. So if you have a vibrant economy, you could have a very large uh, supply of money. And as a matter of fact, if the dollar tied to gold today, the money supply would explode because not only would we put that money to work, which would uh, grow it, but people around the world would use it uh, because they want sound money. So uh, you, you'd get a huge surge, just as in the early 20s when Germany conquered the hyperinflation and introduced a new currency, the money supply exploded because people were willing to hold currency again rather than treating it like a hot potato that you better get rid of before it uh, shrunk in your hands. So, uh, uh, that, so those two things they have to deal with, uh, a, new, a new currency. One is it's got to be stable, and two, it's got to meet the needs of the marketplace and not some arbitrary uh, limit. But uh, Bitcoin is just the beginning of that. Uh, you'll see other things, but don't underestimate the power of uh, the empire striking back uh, on, on any alternative, which is why you got to remove barriers, tax barriers and regulatory barriers to alternative currencies, or uh, you're, you're, you're skating with trouble. Um, I haven't read Larry White's article yet, but uh, Liberty Dollar they, they looks nothing like the U.S. dollar. was backed, I think, by gold and silver. The guy was called a financial terrorist for introducing this alternative currency. So uh, we got to work on removing those lawful barriers, not lawful, but the legal barriers. Otherwise, uh, they, they will find a way to come after you.
and it's not the written law they'll use. They'll invent it as they go. One of the terrible things about Dodd-Frank, among others, is the vague language in which it is written. It is deliberately written in vague language so they can interpret it any way they want and hint at anything they want when they walk into a bank and bankers know their life depends on appeasing these regulators. Uh, that, that totally subverts the rule of law, totally subverts it. So uh, we've got to work on the law side too. Well, thanks very much for attending and uh, let's thank our speakers and then uh, we can proceed up the stairs to lunch. <laughs>